Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. Here with a few of my favorite friends and Bible readers uh, to reinvigorate something that we did during the bad old days of the last lockdown, uh, going deeper. What we do in this program is pretty simple. We help our Bible reading friends uh, find their way through the strange new world of the scriptures. And so we walk chapter by chapter, sometimes even passage by passage, through some of the things that you will have encountered in the last seven days of your Bible reading. We're using the RMM Bible reading plan. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But before we get into that, I want to introduce our fabulous panel. Up on my left, won't mean anything to you if you're listening to us as a podcast, but up on my left, we have uh, Dr. Wyatt Graham, who is uh, the, actually, what is your exact title? Executive Director for TGC Canada. Is that right? Pretty much. Yeah. Executive director of pretty, pretty Canada, much technically, but it's good. Yeah. Directly below me on the screen is my good buddy, <laughs> Pastor Stephen Bray, who is the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church out in St. John, but then also uh, heads up Mile One Mission, which is a great mission uh, church planning organization out on the East Coast. And then down and to my left, we have Pastor Rob Brockman at Living Hope Church in Georgetown. So thank you all for being with us. Uh, just really appreciate you giving the time and uh, all your expertise to this conversation. Glad to be here. Great to be here, buddy. All right. Well, before we uh, open our time in prayer, let me just uh, do a couple of those housekeeping things. First of all, if you're looking for a copy of this Bible reading plan, you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to put them in a couple different places so you can find them. This is the RMM Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. I would imagine that you could enjoy and benefit from this conversation, even if you're using a different plan. There are a lot of really good plans out there. And almost all of them have you starting in Genesis and Matthew. So you're going to be fine. I just talked to a guy today who, for some reason, his Bible reading plan starts him off in First Chronicles. Uh, that is not a good plan. Uh, I'm just putting that out there. Uh, but uh, all, most of the plans are going to have you in Genesis and Matthew and, and something else today. So you should be okay. If you want this plan, though, so you know everything we're talking about, you can find that at www.intotheword.ca. You just click on the About tab, and there'll be some links you can click to get different versions of the plan that you can print out and stick in your Bible. I'm also going to put that up on the Into the Word Facebook page. And if I remember, I'll stick it on YouTube underneath this video when it does uh, post. Uh, and I think that's all I'll say about the plan. And, and I would imagine most people are somewhat familiar with it. And let's just kick ourselves off in a time of prayer. This is unusual. We just talked about this offline. This is weird. But one of the reasons we think it's useful is because we can see the finish line for, for this lockdown. And we want to help our people get across. We want to feed them. This isn't as good as being all in the same room with, with donuts and, and Timbits and cold coffee, but, but it's, it's what we've got and, and, and it can be good. And it has been good. We've enjoyed it in the past. So brother Stephen, would you just commit our time to the Lord as we kick off this new session? I'd love to. Let's pray. Father God, it is a wonderful privilege in the midst of always not wonderful circumstances to have the safety of coming to you in prayer. Thank you again for this medium, as Brother Paul has already mentioned. Um, Lord, it's no substitute for true human interaction. But again, you give us a peace and a love that passes all understanding. And so I'm so thankful that while we grapple in our humanity and our emotions and our feelings with COVID-19, lockdowns, economic uncertainty, differences of opinions, and all the things that go with that, you are the one who provides us with a perspective and a hope that gives us joy in the midst of all this chaos. And one of the great ways that can be found is by reading your word. Mm -hmm. Thankful, I'm so thankful for the 
consistency, the steadfastness, and Father, the relevancy. If anything, you've taught me in 2020, the beginnings of 2021, how often I read your word and it just screams at me about the life I'm living today. So I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the power of prayer. I pray that men and women that hear this or see this will be both challenged and encouraged and also feel safe and welcome to interact, reach out, and ask questions or seek help. Because you are a God who is gentle and lowly. You love us. You love us just as we are. But I'm so thankful you love us so much you never leave us as we are. Mm -hmm. So help us to trust you and embrace you as we learn of you for just this little season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Well, one of the things we figured out was very helpful, uh, just from listener feedback last time around, was for us to provide brief Bible introductions to every new book that we encounter in the plan. Now, on most weeks, we're only encountering one uh, or starting two uh, new books. But uh, this week, because we're at the very beginning, all four of the books that we started are, are new, new, uh, new to the reader. So I thought since there are four of us and we encountered four new books this week, maybe each of us could take a turn uh, introducing. So Rob, we'll start with you. Since this is your first episode with us, I think everybody else has been on uh, in the past, uh, but this is your first time, your, the beginning of your going deeper journey. So we thought it made sense to maybe give you Genesis and you can get us started there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book of Genesis is the first book in what we call the Pentateuch, uh, which means the five scrolls. It's known as the five, book of, five books of Moses as well, because traditionally it is understood and assumed that traditionally that Moses wrote these books, at least on the most part. I'm sure he didn't write his death uh, in Deuteronomy 34, but um, it's, it's understood that Moses wrote those books, and we won't get into the debate. Scholars, some scholars debate that, um, but I like to align myself with Jesus and the apostles who all um, assumed, that's, a, that's a sound decision. Yeah, <laughs> that Jesus, uh, that Moses wrote these books. Uh, I think yeah. of John five forty six, where it says, mm-hmm. if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. So Jesus obviously just assumes that Moses is the author. And Peter does this in Acts 3 as well. So uh, we fall in line. Um, with, with the apostles and Jesus on that. Uh, Genesis means origin in Greek. And really what it is, it explains, in a way, it explains who God is and what his plan is in history and, and who we are in that. The entire story of the Bible is about God, of course, and his plan to save us from sin. And Genesis shows us how God is at the center of every speck of dust that was made, every beam of light, every breath of wind, and every second of history. God is at the center of it. He made it all, and he's sustaining it all. And in the first few chapters of Genesis, we discover that where we came from as humans, um, why we are the way we are, and where we're going. Moses tells us that we're created in the image of God, a loving triune God, and who created all things and who made us to reflect him and exist in perfect, wonderful relationship, but that we rebelled from him. And it goes to show how we, in this rebellion, progressed further and further into sin. And as we continue on in Genesis, we just see how sin evolves from Genesis 3, where sin comes into, I was reading this morning, Genesis 6, 5, where it says, um, it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like you can't say that more clearly. Sin has just eroded us. And so Genesis goes on and tells this, but it also tells of this 
promise, this promise of a savior who would one day crush the head of Satan and save us for, from our sins. And so Genesis, the rest of the book of Genesis kind of walks us through history and shows us how God fulfills that promise through men like Noah and Abraham, sinful, broken people, right? The world's broken and sinful, but God uses these people and he makes a, makes covenants with them to stamp his image on an entire nation that would one day birth the seed of the Messiah. So that's Genesis of the origin story. It tells us, yeah. you know, where we came from and, and it tells us the point God made us. We rejected him. Uh, we chose sin. Sin is destructive and God chose mercy to, and promises to send a savior to redeem this world. God, man, sin, savior. That's kind of Genesis in a brief mm. picture. Mm. That's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were joking about Bible reading plans, but there's a reason they all start with Genesis, not just because it's the first book of the Bible, but you really do have to read and understand and, and appreciate Genesis to understand the rest of the Bible. It would be like missing the first half, of, half hour of a movie. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really, all the major themes are introduced. All the threads are introduced. They all land on Jesus and then they all come to, you know, full and total climactic realization in Genesis or uh, Revelation 21 and 22. It, it really is amazing how the Bible fits together. And you miss that if you don't wrap your head around Genesis. So thanks for that introduction. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd even yeah, add too, if I could, just for a moment, yeah. it's not only that it's the introduction, but it, it almost has everything you need to know about who God is, who we are, what the world is, what the universe is, what God's promise of salvation is, what original, uh, what sin is, it really is in short form, like almost everything you need to know yeah. just in this one book alone. So it's, it's an introduction, but it tells you, like, I even think Genesis 1 through 3, you could almost say, tells you everything you need to know about God, the Trinity, uh, who Jesus will be, sin, uh, in just in these few short chapters. I think it's like an amazing book that we sometimes undervalue by accident. Yeah, you could almost catechize your kids out of Genesis 1 yeah. to 3, yeah. couldn't you? I mean, we, we've gone through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, twice as a, as a family over the course of our, our family devotions. And it is amazing the conversations you can get into. It's, well, it's I awesome. think it even, it even gives us context for what we're going through, like pandemic, yeah. racism, yeah. injustice, yeah. all of that. Like, well, why does this exist? And mm. it's like, yeah. well, Genesis gives us an answer to that. Gender conflict. Uh, you yeah. can't get at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right on. Well, let me uh, let me provide a brief introduction to Ezra, which is probably a book of the Bible that people know significantly less about than than Genesis. Uh, Ezra goes together with the book of Nehemiah and also First and Second Chronicles. And uh, Ezra is a book that you will appreciate more every year that you do the RMM plan. Uh, I'll put it that way, because every in the RMM plan you end the year by going through First and Second Chronicles. And, which, by the way, is great preparation for Christmas. I always feel like I am, I am ready for Christmas after reading First and Second Chronicles because First and Second Chronicles are the most depressing books in the Bible, intentionally so, right? They, they focus on the decline and demise of Israel. And, and they leave you sitting in the dark going, wow, what a disaster. Uh, the, all the promises of God that we thought were going to come to pass in the reign of David, David's family's a mess. Uh, this this whole thing is is has crumbled to to bits. The people could never hold up their end of the bargain, and they you know they always sinned. They were always unfaithful, and now they're you know living in exile and sitting in the dark. And that prepares you for you know the people living in darkness have seen a great light. It prepares you for the Christmas story. It, it's fantastic. It it is not, however, the end of the chronological narrative in the Old Testament. So. It's a great, as I said, it's, the RMM is brilliant here, just the way they, they land this. But so you move from finishing Second Chronicles, you move right into Ezra as you exit December and enter January 1st. 
which is absolutely perfect because Ezra is the next chapter in the story. So if you wanted to read the story like a novel, you would read first and second Chronicles, then you'd read Ezra, then you'd read Nehemiah. Uh, and if you wanted to think of this narrative as a board game, then you could think of the three prophets that go along with it, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, as like the expansion pack. You can tell I got board games for Christmas. Um, but, but it's like the expansion pack because those three prophets actually happen alongside the timeline of, of this story that's contained in First and Second Chronicles. Ezra. You could throw right. Esther in there at some point too. You know, in yeah, that's Ezra the double three. expansion pack. I, I didn't get that for Christmas. That's but a yeah, special you're right. edition. <laughs> so th that's the narrative. Now, in terms of the main themes... Uh, the, the main themes are the providence and mercy of God. Um, so Ezra carries on, as I mentioned, Second Chronicles leaves you in the dark, leaves you sitting in a, in a cave in the, in the dark in, a, in despair. And then all of a sudden, just as God said through the prophet Jeremiah, there, a call goes, goes forth and uh, the government actually ends up sponsoring the rebuilding of the house of David. It's just amazing how that happens. And uh, these waves of exiles return, and in gradual stages, the people of God, the house of God, the land of God is all brought back to life. And, uh, and, and so there's a sense in, in, in which there's a, a great stirring here, and the table is being set for Messiah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a great story. It's a, it's a story about, about providence. It's a story about prophecy. It, it all goes back to the prophecies made in Jeremiah. Here's how the story opens, Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So again, it all flows out of these prophecies in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah 29, 10, when Jeremiah said the exile wouldn't be forever, that it would last for 70 years, and then somehow, some way, God would bring us home. And then isn't it interesting that it ends up being through a decree and through the resources of a pagan king. So just, just an amazing story. And, uh, and, and we should probably introduce the man too. Ezra the man is part of the story. Ezra 7, 10, which you will have read this morning says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So if we're going to restart this, given that what got Israel into trouble was their departure from the word of God, then obviously we need someone to teach us the word of God. And that's a major emphasis too. You get some great stories about reading the word of God, that the, the people are brought back to life through the word of God preached. It's just absolutely marvelous. All right, Stephen, why don't you uh, give us a walk through the Gospel of Matthew? Well, again, and this is so beautiful, the way you just set that up for me, because we didn't pre-talk about this. But, uh, I mean, again, even in your Jewish, the way the Jewish Old Testament is actually done, it ends with actually First and Second Chronicles, not Malachi. And so you've got this darkness, as you talked about, leading into that 400 years where God stops talking. Yeah. And then, kaboom, the book of Matthew. Yeah. And, you know, Rob talked about Genesis, which I think a lot of people, Christian or non-Christian, have heard probably of two books of the Bible, maybe three, Genesis, Matthew, and Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> um, Matthew being the one that probably most of the world knows about. Um, I would say many people know about Matthew. Now, it's interesting with me, this book of Matthew is because, you know, I've got these things that are some technical words. You've got four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels. So in other words, the, the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very obvious if you read this. And then, of course, John kind of is set apart. I'm actually preaching through the gospel of John right now, and you'll notice it because it's very conversational. Matthew is the only guy, believe it or not, too, of all the Gospels who introduced this guy, because Matthew's the writer, and he's the only one in his own Gospel who identifies himself as the tax collector. None of the other Gospel writers identify Matthew as the tax collector, and it's important for people to get that, because as a tax collector, he would have been the Benedict Arnold of his own nation. He's a Jewish person who is working for Rome likely under the table, fleecing his own people to line the pockets of an oppressor, and then God saves him. And so is it any wonder then that this Jewish man who leaves everything, leaves his career, leaves everything, and goes and follows Christ, is the one who then puts out this gospel, which is really amazing to me because he starts out with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about this genealogy, but if you skip down to the bottom of after all the list of names, you get to verse 17 and he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 and so on, uh, from the the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. Hmm. And if you read the rest of chapter one, which men men and women have done, done already this week as they've joined us, Matthew basically lays out, here's my agenda. Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. And I'm going to prove it now. I'm going to show you it, starting from his genealogy right through to his resurrection and his ascension that's recorded in Matthew 28. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, I, I think it's, well, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I am one of the guys with, with, that really believe in the, the natural breakdown that it's really written almost in five sections that Matthew wants us to see in five discourses. And you can see that they, they're, they're keyed off with this kind of a formula. And it happened when Jesus had finished saying these things. Five times, that's a marker. You'll see that in Matthew 7. You see it in Matthew 11, Matthew 13, Matthew 19, and again in Matthew 26. And what I find fascinating is a guy who had spent his life kind of turning his back on Judaism, comes to Christ, and writes about this Jewish Messiah, predominantly to likely a Jewish audience, although the book of Matthew obviously is for everybody, he writes this masterfully beautiful Jewish uh, book about the Messiah. And of course, in those first seven chapters, if you've noticed, I love to break it down this way. In Matthew 1 to 4, Jesus is authoritatively announced. And you get the announcement, the, the dreams with Joseph, the angels that announce him at his birth, and then God in chapter 3 into chapter 4 with his baptism and his temptation, this is my beloved son. And then you've got that famous Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus authoritatively speaks. And then, you know, as we get into the rest of our reading and those that follow it, in chapter 8, 9, and 10, you'll see that God, Jesus authoritatively acts. And I just, I, I've loved that as a way, a little marker for me on a personal level. He's authoritatively announced, he authoritatively speaks, and he authoritatively acts. And it really helped me along the way. I just, again, chapter one is just one of my favorites with, with the, the nobility of Joseph, the, the vulnerability, you can feel the tension, you can feel the humanity. But then just as, you know, what Rob said, you need the book of Genesis to tell you who God is, the origin of humanity, all these things. And anybody that reads the Bible or anybody that lives life 
very quickly discovers something's wrong. Mm-hmm. We're wrong. <laughs> something's not right. And so now after centuries of silence, then Matthew tells us that God comes and says, I'm going to send you the Messiah mm-hmm. and he will save his people from their sin. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then you just have this beautiful, again, gentle yet powerful. I love that word authority. I think Jesus just personifies the idea of gentleness and meekness with authority. And Matthew, I think, just does a masterful job of showing you that. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to a 21st century observe, interpret, apply type thing as I read it, I love the fact that Jesus gives us such a beautiful example of what actual manliness is. Um, and, you know, our world is so uh, disjointed with its, its conflicting definition of manhood. And Jesus shows us something that just contravenes all of that. And I love the way he just draws people in. And again, starting with the author himself, I am, you know, the book, there's lots of debate around Matthew. It's one of these things. It's probably the most well-known, most popular, most one popularly read book of the Bible. Yet it is surrounded in controversy about who wrote it, when it wrote, when man Matthew wrote it. I would tend to agree that with the idea that he wrote it late sixties, um, and um, I've got some personal reasons for that as well. I, I like the idea that he wrote this pre the fall of Jerusalem in eighty seventy, but um, it's just a beautiful book. I've really enjoyed it, and I, I trust mm-hmm. that your readers, especially if they're reading it for the first time, and and dare I say this one one of the things I love about the RRM is it's never been about quantity but quality. Mm-hmm. Take your time. Let these things, don't just use it as a program. Really yeah, I always say to people, you know what, if it takes you two years to go through it, who cares? Right. Like, so exactly. uh, whether you decide I'm going to do two columns this year or, or whatever, or do one column. Or you know what, I've, I've said to people before, hey, if you, if you start off and you're doing all four columns, you're going to try and do it in a year, but you only get 50% of the little boxes checked, who cares? Yep. Then, then right. check, you know, keep, keep working. And if you don't finish on December 31st, doesn't matter. The point is, mm. it's, it, every day you do it is good. Right. So, and I would yeah. say again, the entire book of Matthew, just think of that one word authority. He yeah. comes with authority. And then at the end, all authority has been yeah. given to me. And you just see that woven right through Matthew's gospel. Right on. Wyatt, do you want to uh, give us an introduction to the Acts of the Apostles? Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's called not just Acts, but the Acts of the Apostles. It is because it's the Acts of the Apostles after Jesus rose from the dead and went into heaven. But it's interesting that it really opens up with Jesus still on earth for 40 days. And it begins by saying that Jesus here was speaking about the kingdom of God. Mm. He was given insider information after the resurrection without any kind of hiddenness to it anymore. Very clear, straightforward teaching. And the book actually ends in nearly the exact same way. It's Paul in Rome preaching the kingdom of God. Mm. I think this kind of like uh, begins and ends the book because the middle part of it is really the ongoing works of the risen Lord as he works in and through the church as the apostles preach the gospel and the kingdom grows in an inaugurated form. Um, maybe for structure, I, I find it kind of interesting that maybe Acts 1.8 gives you some hint. Uh, Jesus tells the apostles that you're going to be my witnesses, you'll receive power, and you'll go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then you actually see through the book that progress. They're in Judea, then in Samaria, chapter 8, and they go kind of to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, it ends in Rome, so you don't get the full picture, but we know from history that the, the gospel kept spreading and spreading and spreading after that. Uh, it's interesting to me, too, that you have this uh, kingdom of God um, statement happening right before Jesus ascends on the clouds right into heaven. So this is chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. 
And then you have in, in the passage of Stephen in chapter seven, when he's being stoned, he says he actually sees a vision of Jesus as the son of man at the right hand of God. What well, strikes me as Daniel seven, the son of man comes on clouds to this kind of uh, divine kingdom in heaven and sits down. And what does he do? He gives that same kingdom to his people. Revelation one, how does it open? The son of man in his glory is the one who gives the kingdom to his people. So I think the book of Acts is really, this is Jesus's final teaching. It rises to heaven, but he's not out of the picture. At least one author has called or described this book as the acts of the risen Lord. Yeah. And as the acts of the risen Lord through the apostles, through the church. And, and I really think the kingdom of heaven is maybe the primary theme as it progresses throughout. So, I mean, that would be the way that I introduce it and, and understand it. So I'm happy to oh, hear great. more comments. Oh, that's great. And, and, you know, we'll get into that as we, uh, as we get into some of these stories. And we're going to be in Acts for a couple of weeks, which is great. Mm-hmm. I think we'll be in Acts uh, for each of the four programs that we have planned. So there'll be lots of opportunity to dig into that. I want to dig in uh, now to something that is, again, pretty foundational. I want to make sure that our readers are off to a good start. Uh, back that we would have read on January 1st, on New Year's Day, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, I think an argument could be made that Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but just the phrase in the beginning God might be the most important verse in all the Bible. But I think it could also be argued that Genesis 1.26 and 27 have actually become the most controversial verses in all the Bible. Wyatt, help us understand why that is and how the battle over gender and self-determination has taken over the culture and has now started coming into the church. This is a live conversation in many of our churches. So walk us through that if you can. Yeah, I think in simplest terms, we live in a world, we're born into it, where the default no longer is that God created us in his image, that we have a human nature, and that's biologically marked by signs of maleness and femaleness, reproduction and so on. And now we live in a world where uh, our true selves are going to end up being defined by how we self-identify, who we think we truly are. And our biological markers are almost secondary to that self-expression. So that's kind of a weird world to live in now. And you mentioned, yeah, the, even the church and Christians. Well, I think it happens this way. If you're born into this world, it becomes common sense to hear statements like this. Um, we should be free to identify how we want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Like, why do you care what I do in my house? If I self-identify as a, as a male or a female or something in between, wh- why would that even, wh- why would you care? And if a Christian says, if Paul Carter reads Genesis one twenty-seven to someone and says, look, God created us to be human. We have a human nature and that's marked by being male or female. What you have just done is threaten someone's identity who yeah. they see themselves as being at the most central core of themselves. If I express myself as a, say, I'm, I have a male biology, but I say I'm female, I'm a woman, and that's my deepest and truest identity. What you've done is sort of psychological violence to me. At least that's how many people are perceiving it today. So I think we're in a really tricky place that the entire culture is built around the premise that you do you. You, know, you be who you're want to be. And if that turns out that it's not the same as your biological markers, well, that's true for you. But as a Christian, we know that's not how God made us in his image. That's not conducive to human flourishing. 
And I know people might point to some exceptions, like there's the intersex and all that kind of stuff. But I think these exceptions prove the rule. We can be compassionate to those exceptions, loving and kind and generous. But if we, if we really care about human flourishing, being fully who we ought to be as human beings, we have to say God created us as male and female. Those biological markers, even though they're outside of our control, do define something about our human nature. And, yeah, it's uh, interesting. I, I'm sorry, why I didn't mean to jump in, but I, I think that it, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, m- most first-time Bible readers wouldn't have been offended until Genesis 3. Um, yeah. but, but now, I mean, you're going to be offended <laughs> before you get 26 verses yeah. in. Uh, you, mm-hmm. might, you might be offended by the time you get to the end of the first verse, in the beginning, God. Uh, Genesis 1 is very confrontational to, to our culture. What it says is that you are not God. You do not self-determine. In the beginning, God. The God is the center. God is the first principle. God is our, our, our reference point. He assigns us our identity. That's, that's what we're seeing in this verse, right? He created them, male and female. He created them. He, is, he tells us who we are. So we don't tell ourselves who we are. He tells us who we are. Mm. And we don't decide what the limits of our self-expression are. You, know, you, you mentioned harm. Um, our culture, it, one of the, the first principles of our cultural religion is that I am the highest authority, and the only limit on my authority is harm that, that may conceivably result to other people. Well, the Bible mm-hmm. says, no, no, no. God is the highest authority, and he, he establishes limits as it suits him. And that concept, which you cannot escape in the first chapter. God is commanding, God is calling, God is identifying, God is assigning. We meet all of that. It's completely confrontational. We meet it all in the first chapter of the Bible. Yeah, I love how you said, I mean, God tells us who we are. We all think we say who we are. And this is a fundamental confrontation between creator and creature. Most of us, I think 100 years ago, 50 years ago, would have assumed God created us and it's okay that he tells us who we are, but things have changed so dramatically. I would just, while we're on this podcast, just want to recommend that Carl Truman book we talked about, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Mm-hmm. You can see the, see the image here. Yeah. It's an excellent book. I'm not done it yet, but it is helping to explain how we move from a place that we described 50 years ago to the place where we are now. And I think it could really illuminate a lot of people's questions about why we're in a world where the idea that God defines who we are and that biology defines our, our sex is so it's no longer common sense oddly enough at least to many people yeah, yeah. and it's it, it's it's a faster read than charles taylor's secular uh, <laughs> secular age so <laughs> if you don't still have, haven't finished if you don't have time for charles taylor <laughs> uh, pick up carl truman <laughs> the idea of the idea of like human liberty and freedom man it's just so like that's one of the biggest altars of worship today that people are at just freedom my individual freedom my individual right and this is just the expression of that to an absurdist level that I can even, I'm even free and liberated enough to determine my own gender, my own. And this is where kind of this Romans one picture kind of leads us. The more we abandon God and turn away from God, um, you got to start following the logic and the logic can lead to a lot of crazy places. Yeah. Reading Genesis one and Romans one side by side, Oh, yeah. uh, is a very interesting experience. Not that we did that in, in the RMM plan, but, but it's, if you know the Bible real well, I find you split screen when you read Genesis 1. You've got Genesis 1 going in your mind, and you've got Romans 1 going in your mind because it tells you what happens if you reject uh, Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Paul says, okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you the anti-Genesis 1, and it's not a good story. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's move into, into Ezra now. Uh, I, I think there's an opportunity for us to talk about power, providence, and politics uh, conversations. I think even, in, Stephen, in your prayer, you mentioned those are the topics of the hour just because of where we're at right now. Uh, I find it interesting. Yeah, maybe interesting is a, is a callous word. Uh, I don't mean that I'm not, I'm not compassionately engaged. I just mean as an observer of the world, as an observer of history and providence, I find it interesting how crisis sharpens the mind. Crisis gets us thinking about things. I just don't think 11 months ago we were having interesting conversations, yeah. urgent conversations about providence. Where is God when it hurts? Well, not much was hurting 12, 12 months ago, right? Except for, you know, a few folks. But as on the whole, we were living the Vita Loca. Now all of a sudden we're, we're under pressure, we're hurting, we're scared, and, and we're trying to figure out how to respond. And, and one of the most natural responses is anger. And who are we going to be angry at? The government, I guess. Uh, and, and so there's, there's lots of anger. And that, again, all these pressures, all these forces are encouraging us to have a really interesting and important conversation about power, providence, and politics. And, and there really isn't a better resource that I can think of in the Bible than the book of Ezra. Um, it, 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 the people are in crisis uh, there, everything has collapsed. There, uh, talk about losing your jobs. Everybody had lost their job. They were, they were all dislocated from their land, from their businesses, relocated. Uh, talk about having your church shut down. Their temple was was reduced to rubble. Their priesthood was scattered. The, everything, and 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 it all happened. The 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 amazing thing is, apparently, it all happened at the sovereign command of God. Um, one of the, the Bible passages that's so critical in, in this whole conversation about Ezra actually comes to us in Jeremiah. I mentioned Jeremiah is very critical to Ezra's understanding. Jeremiah 27, 6 to 9. Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. This is God talking, obviously. The king of Babylon, my servant. You imagine that? That this pagan king is referred to as a servant of God. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers. Apparently there were some pastors and spiritual leaders going directly against the counsel of God in, in those days. So do not listen to them, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. So there, there was this dispute. Should we fight back? Should we fight against the political power? How should we understand this? And, and the Bible, Jeremiah is saying, no, no, this is all of God. And, and Ezra operates on the assumption that this is from God. But then interestingly, at just the right time, it's also government power that ends up rebuilding the house of God. Uh, this, this morning, you will have read about Artaxerxes, who issues this proclamation saying, everybody get out of the way of the Jews. Everybody give them money. We're going to uh, marshal tax resources to rebuild the house, rebuild the land. It's an absolutely remarkable story about power, politics, and Providence. Now, Rob, I know that you've been uh, thinking about this, writing about this a little bit. Uh, help us understand the relationship between the covenant community and the political powers that be. How do we yeah. relate to the political powers? To what extent should we be attempting to manipulate or move them? How, how does this all work for us? 
this is the question of the day, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you said, Paul, and we're, a lot of us have been thinking about this and yeah. then when, where we weren't 12 months ago. No. Uh, and I think a, a key thing to start off with thinking about this is what you've been hitting on, which is the sovereignty of God. Um, like I got to believe if it's God's sovereign, he's God's so he's sovereign everywhere. I can't pick and choose when I believe that. Yeah. And this is a, this Ezra is a great example of God sovereignly bringing Nebuchadnezzar in the story of Israel, bringing Nebuchadnezzar as a punishment to Israel and then, you know, pagan governor, pagan empire, and then bringing another pagan empire in the form of Cyrus to come and rescue Israel and to return them back to Jerusalem. Like, I think of Isaiah 45, seven, when he's actually talking about Cyrus, he's, he's, he's prophesying about Cyrus. He says this, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God chooses to elect these people and put them in their positions of power and not to approve of their morality, but because he's God, he's sovereign and he's doing some bigger things that we can't see. And I, I think this is why when you think about verses like Romans 13, or you think about first Peter two, when it talks about submission to government, that's got to play a factor. Yeah. It, they even say, Hey, submit to your governors out of fear of God. Right. That's, that's their logic. Their logic is um, actually Peter literally says for Christ's sake, be subject to every human institution. He's both of these guys were most likely, by the way, writing about Nero yeah. who would kill them in a few years. So, you know, Nero, not a big fan of the Christians. And they're saying, hey, this is not some sort of idealized government. This is Nero. And they're saying, hey, the Christian ought to have this perspective towards government. God put him in authority. So we need to fear God and submit to them. So I think that's a key, key thing. The second thing is because God is in control, because God is sovereignly orchestrating all these things, we believe that this helps us to understand how we are to live in light of that. And even in the face of these political realities that Paul and Peter are both facing, they both write a whole lot about how as Christians we're meant to handle ourselves in every circumstance. And there's a couple of key things that we need to remember as Christians in terms of how we are to live in light, even in light of these powers like Peter and Paul were. We're told that we need to have a good reputation. Christians are supposed to have a good reputation. It's one of the keys of elders. You know, Paul says, tells this to Timothy in Timothy 3.7. He says, uh, you must be well thought of by outsiders. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, they got nothing to speak against you. Yeah. So we're meant to, con as Christians, in light of even all these political powers, we're meant to hold ourselves in a respectful way. Um, or with good reputation, we're supposed to have good reputation. We're supposed to be respectful. It's another thing. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, First Timothy 3, elders are supposed to be respectable. Peter says the same thing in chapter 3. He says, always be prepared to make a defense. And he goes on to say, with graciousness and gentleness yeah. and respect, we're meant to handle ourselves with the respect. Even in light of these governing powers and tensions, Christians are meant to live this way. We're told to live quiet lives. That's another thing Paul tells Timothy. I urge, this is 1 Timothy 2, um, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings yeah. who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every 
way. Part of the reason we're supposed to be praying for our authorities, by the way, and Paul, you had encouraged us. I think it was yesterday you were sent out a tweet saying, hey, when was the last time you prayed for Doug Ford? We want to be praying that Doug Ford would look upon us honorably and, and favorably so that we can live quiet lives. So we can kind of live under the radar, preach the gospel, save people, do kingdom work. That's part of what we're called to do. And then yeah. finally, um, we're also told to live submissive lives. Hmm. That ought to be characteristic of Christians, submissive, Romans 13. But I want to draw your attention to Titus 3. I haven't heard this one talked about. Um, Paul says this to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, yeah. and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Submission is... I think everywhere. Gavin Ortland tweeted that out this morning. Isn't, isn't that right? Uh, well, yeah. I had, he, he said, I've never... One of the Ortlands, at least. Yeah, there's so <laughs> many. <laughs> but, <laughs> too many to, but I, I remember seeing that as well. Just he, I think his tweet said something like, I've never been as discouraged by the state of my country as I am now. What shall yeah. I do? Yeah, and then he, he read that mm. verse. I just thought, these are wow. These are just how... These are the key kind of characteristics, right? So reputable, yeah. respectful, submissive, living quiet lives. That, when you look at the Christian, and if you're going to use colors to paint their life, those are the colors. That's what we're all meant to look like. And there's no exception clause. There's no exception clause. And I, I, sometimes I see Except this when you're really, really upset. Yeah, except when you're mad, <laughs> except when you don't agree politically. Except, except when you when, don't understand the science. That's it. Yeah, then, it's all complicated, yeah. Then, you know, you can just throw all those things out the window. And I kind of yeah. feel like that's a caution that we all need to take. It doesn't matter if the government outlaws Christianity. Christians are meant to be respectful. It doesn't matter what the circumstance. You are meant to be respectful, submissive reputable and live quiet lives. We don't just turn rogue when things don't go our way. That's the point. And I think yeah. so. And that's why Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. And so we shouldn't yeah. use mm. our freedoms as Canadian citizens to cover up evil. And I kind of think of it this way. We never abandon character for conviction. We, yeah. we must have conviction and character. We must do things in an honorable way, but we also must stand for our conviction. So I think that's the tension that we got to live with yeah. in this time, especially when there's some big significant issues around government shutting down churches mm -hmm. and stuff. Like, how do we think about that? Well, these things, that needs to be part of the puzzle. That needs to be at the center of it. Yeah. And these are, it's a new situation, right? Like, I mean, there's a sense in which I, I think this conversation has been great. Uh, you know, I've, uh, we can all be bruised. Uh, I, I, I think I said to Wyatt the other day that, um, we all probably have to get a little thicker skinned uh, when, when these issues are being discussed. My goodness, I spent the weekend reading Luther and Calvin on this issue and you realize, wow, the, pol the polemical climate in, in their day was significantly more robust than, than in our day. We're, we're doing okay. <laughs> more robust, eh? <laughs> yeah, more robust. Nobody has called me wicked and pernicious in hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. But I, I guess I'm, I'm saying this is a new crisis and it's also, it's a new question because the reality is for my entire lifetime, the government has been favorable to an odd degree towards, towards Christianity. I mean, we get paid to give to the church, right? Like I get tax exemptions because I'm a minister. Um, there are, we have fabulous charter protections. This is, this mm -hmm. is great. And, and it's, and just the world out there has been great. So here we have a confusing crisis, COVID. And for the first time, the government is, is doing their job in a way that bumps up against our job. 
And, and so we're kind of having to think about that. And yeah, so some of the thinking has been loud and, and strange, but what great resources we have in the scriptures. And I would also say what great resources we have in history. Like this is not mm. the first time this happened. This happens mm. every 150 years. So there's, there's lots there for us. Why you were going to say something. Yeah. I just want to add in Jeremiah, if you flip over two chapters to Jeremiah 29, in probably one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, there's the two verses. I know the plans I have for you for good, not for evil. Seek the welfare of the city as well. I find it striking that Jeremiah delivered or sends a revelation from Yahweh to his people. And where does he physically send that letter? According to 29.4, he sends it to Nebuchadnezzar through two other people. Mm. So he actually uses a revelation of a direct revelation of God goes to the exilic people, but it goes first to Nebuchadnezzar through the or normal hierarchical means of authority. Yeah. I guess before it gets to all the people. And it strikes me as this maybe gives us an example of how to live as exiles and sojourners on earth today. God has laid out, we're at the church, we're exiles. God has laid out these authorities and we can work alongside, within, underneath, beside, <laughs> through them in ways that are not antagonistic. Yeah. They may not always mesh and line up perfectly as you noted. Uh, but Jeremiah is not saying, well, I'm not going to send this to Nebuchadnezzar straight to the people because who cares about the king? Uh, he's able to actually send a revelation from Yahweh to Nebuchadnezzar for the exilic Jews. Yeah. I just find that so significant, the actual means by which it happens. Yeah, that's what, what, what you're doing now, White, though, is you're gluing together why we do this Robert Murray McShane reading program, because this is the stuff you discover. I mean, yeah, in yeah. the New Testament, Paul says to the Corinthians, right? He, he rattles off all these things from the Old Testament. He says, now, why, why is that there? This is there for you. And, and, and as you guys are talking about Jeremiah and all these things, and you talk about Nebuchadnezzar, and Paul, you talked about most of our lives, we've had the favor of our modern government. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was favorable to Daniel and his buddies, they were put up to positions of authority, they influenced the government, the culture, but then all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what, I want to be worshipped, so build me a statue, and I'm always, you know, when you go into the book of Daniel, and those three guys... They don't, they don't obey. They civilly disobey. Yeah. But at, going to Rob's point, they are kind and yeah. mm. gentle and respectful. And I love that speech. Be it known, O king, whether we live or die. Yeah, you, you do know, what you got to do, king. That's right. <laughs> and and they don't do. drag him into their, I will say, they don't drag him into their Christianity in the sense of you need to live to the standard we live by. They understand yeah. You know, and then again, even Daniel years later with, with, with in Persia, right? And he yeah. outlaws prayer and he's, he, he just goes about his business and he prays and he's down in that. And, and what I love about it, and we don't, we're missing this, is what Rob was talking about, what Peter admonished us. These guys are so gentle. Don't you find it fascinating? The guy who's uncomfortable with those three buddies is Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. yeah. Darius is the one that didn't sleep that night. Not, yeah. not Daniel. He slept like a baby wrapped around and lying. <laughs> That's like, a good point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Darius was the one up all night. By the way, when Jesus is crucified, who's the one that's trying to wash his hands from his guilt and shame? It's Pilate. Christ is completely at peace with what, what's going going on. Pilate's the one, and people don't realize this, and you're reading this. Pilate is the one later on in antiquity. We find out Pilate kills himself. He was never the same after this confrontation and rejection of Christ. Yeah. He takes his own life. And I think as Christians, we need to see this in our modern thing. Now, that's not to get into the high, is this even persecution versus inconvenience? I, I was talking yeah. to some pastors yesterday, Paul, 
And this really rebuked me as we talk about all this with COVID and government restrictions and lockdowns. And you mentioned it a few days ago when you took some heat for it about whether or not this was the judgment of God. We're looking to blame government and so on and so forth. And one pastor challenged me and he said, you know, we've been awfully quiet in Canada about abortion and euthanasia. And now all of a sudden we want to get our knickers in a knot and be all over social media because we don't agree with the government about lockdowns. Yeah. Um, You know, where were we? Where was our fervency, our passion, our defense of life? And again, you know, the only other thing I would say as Christians in light of what Rob said, if you're seeking to save humanity and yet in your seeking to save it, you lose your humanity. What have you saved? Yeah. yeah, And Christians are supposed to example what it means to care for humanity while being human. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Good job. Well, I will tell you this, uh, you know, I, I've thought for a little while, I haven't had the time to do it, but I thought it would be very interesting to do a little um, study of civil disobedience in the book of Daniel. Um, you know, and I know we're not there. We're, we're, we're talking about Ezra, but this is all, these are all related stories. Mm. Um, and I, it's fascinating what you see there. There is a place for civil disobedience. There's a couple episodes of civil disobedience in that story, yep. but, but the way they do it is, yeah. is so interesting. You know, it, I think it was Luther who, who said, ours is but to obey and suffer, mm. right? Like there, there's no, it, there is a place. So he, he wrote an entire uh, treatise on secular authority when um, the, the, the government was trying to, to remove the New Testament from individual believers. And, and he, he said, listen, if they come for, for you, you got to disobey. If they come and ask you for that Bible, you got to say, no, I'm not. But then he, he wasn't saying, you know, rise up against, uh, against the, the magistrate. He was saying, you know, expect they'll take you to prison and they might take your home and ours is but to suffer and obey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that, yeah. So dis- disobedience. Yep. But it's a, it's a passive disobedience. It's a costly disobedience. It's a Jesus disobedience. We do, we do follow a crucified Messiah, yeah. right? Who like a lamb. When you hop into the, the New shears. Testament yeah. with what Rob was talking about, but what stood out to me in the book of Acts is you know in a few few days we're going to get there in Acts 16. Paul is doing right things, honorable things. He ends yeah. up before these guys. He knows he's Roman, by the way. All he's got to do is defend himself, yeah. and he avoids a beating and arrest, and he doesn't do it. Yeah, he doesn't get out on, on you know in the masses proclaiming all of his goodness and what his rights and privileges are. He's silent, gets beaten, gets put in jail, has a prayer meeting miraculous and the day after he says oh by the way guys just so you know i am roman and they all panic again i love it when you do what the bible tells you to do the guys that end up being anxious and on the back foot are the civil authorities not the christians yeah and dare i say again one last thing that sticks out to me is plenty the younger when he's writing the trajan right yeah i find them and he gets the one thing i can tell you emperor they die well Yeah. yeah right i find like we can't even be inconvenienced well yeah yeah like that's, that's what it hit me, Paul, a few days ago. I've, I've been mulling over that. Like what of this is actually more about God's judgment of the church, yeah. not the sliding of the culture away from God. Where does Peter say judgment starts? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Well, interesting too. Calvin uses that, that prophecy in Jeremiah 27 uh, or that, that passage in Jeremiah 27 where God says, this is for me, right? Bab- Babylon's coming, but it's me. I'm sending them. And this is from me. And don't resist. Anybody who resists Nebuchadnezzar is on, is on my bad list. Calvin uses that to say that, you know, our job is not to overthrow the government. Even a wicked king, you know, he says, the, based on that scripture, we should assume that a wicked king has been sent to punish the church. 
Um, that that's just a piece of the puzzle that has dropped out of the evangelical mind and that, you know, maybe this, this crisis will rattle it back. Well, we've given a lot of time to that. And, and I think wisely so, because as Rob said, it is, it's the conversation of the hour, but uh, Stephen, I don't want to rush you, but is there any way you can give us a quicker walk through the genealogy than perhaps you had planned in Matthew one? <laughs> well, you know what? The genealogy is pretty funny for me. It's interesting. This how the Lord works things out. We talked about the sovereignty of God, our Christmas theme. We did a, a book by Dan Darling called the characters of Christmas. And my job was actually to preach on the four ladies that are mentioned in this genealogy. Yeah. So I've, I've done some study on this, but one quote that really jumped out at me that I wanted to share with you guys when I was doing this particular um, sermon, uh, Bruner says, Matthew turns dull genealogy into evangelism and a birth story into a lexicon for the names of God. Hmm. I just love that statement and the idea there. Because again, when you mentioned Chronicles, I think a lot of people don't like Chronicles because there are those genealogical lists. Yeah. And we so quickly just go, okay, there's a bunch of names. But Matthew of all places, you have to stop and see what Matthew's doing. He starts with, you know, I'm going to show you the genealogy of Jesus Christ right out of the gate, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's connecting the dots. I want you to know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Messiah. He uses all of these terminologies and then he gives you the lineage. But the beauty of it is it's a, it's a who's who of sinners and misfits. Yeah. Like even the, the, the way he, it's almost like the family line keeps turning towards the worst possible person. It's it's not the family tree. It's the family (laughs) messed up tree. It really is. And, and even with the fact that these women are there, which would have shocked his audience, not just that he included women in this genealogy, but the women he chooses to include. Yeah. You've got Tamar who is, you know, disguised herself as a prostitute. You move to Rahab, who was a prostitute. You move to Bathsheba. You go to Rahab, uh, Ruth. And, and people often give Ruth a bit of a pass because she's got this godly type of stuff, but she's, she's from Moab, yeah. <laughs> like the most despised nation. She's a, her existence. People who result, weren't even supposed to be allowed to come in the temple. Right. And because she's a result of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters. Yeah. And yet all the time, Matthew wants us to know something. Yeah. Jesus is coming and it's a universal mission. Yeah. And so this is the stuff, this and is why I think mercy. you need to just step back and allow this stuff to permeate and don't be mm. afraid to do a little bit of digging and reading and studying. Don't be afraid to ask questions. The one thing I would say with Bible reading journal, get a journal, have it next to you, write out your questions, write out the things that jump out at you. And know your pastor's email address. Like one of the things I, I mean, it's kind of our job, isn't it? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I get a lot of email from Bible readers, which I love. And, and I just think that's the most primary thing I do. Uh, yeah. and, and so you know, read your Bible, know your pastor's email address and, and send them questions and, and, and expect an answer. And, and so what, I'm so glad that you said what you did about, about the, the sermon you preached on this too, because one of the whole hopes that I have for this is that people will be able to dig, dig a little deeper. That's, that's where the, mm-hmm. the name comes from. Mm-hmm. And the, the genealogies are loaded with riches, but, but they do require digging. I always feel like they reward a certain type of reader. They reward those who are willing to do a little work. If you're a lazy reader, if you're just trying to tick your four boxes, yeah. the, the genealogies are what suck the life out of you. But if you're a digger, 
uh, they there's riches there like you would not believe. So, uh, will you email me the link to the sermon you preached on the genealogy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I'll and I'll stick what? it up on the, the end of the word Facebook. The beauty page. of the beauty of this is when you do the digging, you can get this into stuff that remember. I I brought it down to this: Jesus comes in the right line, in the right time, and by the right design. Yeah. So you can take something and make it so that you've got something bite sized to take into your everyday workday. Yeah. Right. I think people look at these things and go, oh, "Well, I'm not a scholar." No, but all I need to know from this is Matthew was telling me Jesus comes exactly Galatians four right in the fullness of time. He came come the right time, the right line, and it was God's design. Nice. Which now bring it all the way back to what you were talking about with Genesis, which means that's why it's important that gender matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. because you don't define yourself. God has; He's got a purpose for you. Upon I love and it. You in may Matthew, not know what it is. Well, in Matthew, right, the sermon. Yeah. This this is the God who knows the hairs of your head. Yeah. So it, that's such an arbitrary factoid for someone to tell us, yeah. right? So in other words, what, what, what's the purpose of it? If he can know the hairs of your head, then what makes you think he doesn't know everything about you and has a plan for you and a purpose and a value and an identity? Yeah. And Satan's trick and lie is to make you think he's not trustworthy. Mm. I'm reading a book called The Pastor and His Critics, which would be my plug. And, and in it, Joel Beakey says the first criticism was when Satan comes to Eve. Yeah. The very first criticism, that destructive criticism, Jared Wilson in his book, The Gospel According to Satan, he says, before there was death, there was a lie. Right? And that's what we got to see. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, I want to move into uh, a passage that I, I, I think is worth sorting out because <laughs> I think a, a misunderstanding of this passage lies at the root of a lot of the challenges that, that, that people have when they try to understand Christianity. It's one of those knots that if you untie it, a bunch of other things immediately fall into place. So the passage I'm talking about is Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So let me read it to you. Jesus says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what are we to make of that? If Jesus is saying that the whole Old Testament law is in place and must be taught perpetually and forever, and that anybody who relaxes even the least of the laws of the Old Testament is least in the kingdom of God, then the Apostle Paul is least in the kingdom of God uh, because he relaxed circumcision. Uh, it would be hard to think of how he could have relaxed it any further. He said literally multiple times, it is nothing. And, and he relaxed uh, the, the Jewish feast days. Uh, he, he, he said that it's not about that either. Uh, the, if, if that's what Jesus meant, then Peter is least in the kingdom of God because uh, Peter relaxed the food laws. And in fact, you know, as, as crazy as it is to say it, if, if that's what Jesus meant, then Jesus is least in the kingdom of God because thus he declared all foods clean. So I don't think that's what he could have meant, but then what did he mean? How should we read in this passage today? So big Gordian knot, a couple of uh, hefty Bible readers here to untie it for us. Uh, have a go. Stephen, you're muted. 
I'm was going that, intent- that was strategic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm going through this uh, right now in my own daily Devo. We're reading yeah. systematically through Matthew's gospel. And what I love here with Jesus is, you know, in that whole Sermon on the Mount, he's just been doing this. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Yeah. And, and, and I, I actually think that Jesus is shocking his audience, starting with the disciples to the crowd watching in to the scribes and Pharisees who I, I picture in my mind him pointing out saying, unless your righteousness exceeds those fellows over there, and then proceeds to go, guess what? Nobody keeps the law. Yeah. I've come to be the law fulfiller for you. In other words, I think he's moving us through the whole idea of what the law will do is what Paul talks about in Romans. All this does is condemn you. All this will do is remind you, you can't keep it. Now, I've come to live it, fulfill it, satisfy, and not just the letter of the law, because I believe when he does that, you've heard that it's said, but I say, he's actually ratching it up and saying, you think you figured out a way to keep the letter of the law? Let me tell you what the spirit of the law is. Yep. Yeah. And you, once you get all this, your only reaction is, I'm damned. Like, I yeah. can't. And, and hence James, right? If you break the law in one point, you're guilty of all. And so really what I believe Jesus is doing here, he's, he's, he's telling his disciples, guys, ultimately what you need is me. Mm. I'm going to live the life you can't live. And I will die the death you deserve. And I will rise victorious. And therefore, hence these other, these other windows you get throughout the Gospels where he does when you, what you're talking about, Paul, where he says, you know, I am the Sabbath, right? right. Yeah. When, when the guy's lowered down through the roof and he says, your sins are forgiven and the, everybody's chirping, he says, well, what's easier to say? This or this? I own the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah. It's all in me. Exactly, right? And hence, by the way, when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he gives that final illustration, you know, the guy who builds his, his, his house upon the rock or the sand. And I love it because two guys build a house and the same circumstances hit both guys. Wind, floods, rains. Yeah. There but goes your prosperity. Built on. Right. What yeah. you're built on is the difference. Right. Yeah. And in other words, and I don't think he's, he's saying you build your life on the law. He's saying you build your life on me. On me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's my 60 second Newfoundland answer. <laughs> hey, right on. I like it. My uh, 92 second <laughs> Hamilton answer. Hamilton answer. (laughs) Fieldtown answer. (laughs) I I, I would agree. I also think it's intriguing to look at the word fulfill as it's used before this passage. Mm -hmm. And essentially in Matthew, like two, three, four, the word fulfill when it comes to the Old Testament seems to point to Jesus. It's used over and over. 122, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord with reference to Jesus. Um, 223, he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill, and so on. Uh, Even his baptism according to 3.15, was to fulfill all righteousness. And I kind of wonder if it's instructive. It's telling us what this word is meaning for Matthew, and it's really a word that signifies something that Jesus does on our behalf. He fulfills mm. something. Yeah. So what does the word fulfill mean? And it seems to mean kind of what Steve was saying. Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. He sums it up. He does it all. He's the standard. He's the thing that completes it, finishes it, perfects it, fulfills it. And uh, that, in that sense, he's the one, uh, that's why scripture is all fulfilled in him. So I, I agree with Steve, and I think it's intriguing to look at the word fulfilled to help contribute to his argument. I thought he was going to say it's intriguing that we agree. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I, uh, I have a D.A. Carson quote, which is always helpful. Yes, uh, it I, is. I, I, Wyatt and I were talking uh, 
uh, yesterday or the day before, I finally got a copy of uh, D.A. Carson's fabulous book, uh, From Sabbath to Lord's Day, mm. which, which deals at great length about this, this sort of transition from Old Testament ritual law to, uh, in, into the New Testament and, uh, and, and deals with this passage at length. And there's just a golden quote here I'd, I'd love to read. So Carson says this, commenting on, on this passage we're looking at. He says, Jesus does not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that which toward it points. Thus, the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. The detailed prescriptions of the Old Testament may well be superseded, because whatever is prophetic must in some sense be provisional. But whatever is prophetic likewise discovers its legitimate continuity in the happy arrival of that towards which towards which it has pointed, close quote. So th- that is the key because uh, Jesus says that, hey, anybody who uh, deviates from the law of Moses is going to be least in the kingdom of God. But he, he sort of says, you know, until heaven and earth pass away, until there's a complete overhaul of the world system, mm-hmm. which then happened in his death, which is why at, at the Last Supper, when he inaugurated the new kingdom, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus' death put an end to that world and started a whole new world. That's why it, it says in Hebrews 7, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So there, there is a new law. Now, Carson anticipates what everyone's going to say. Is that anarchy? Is that antinomianism? <laughs> He's got a great closing quote. He says this, this in no way denies that there is an eternal moral law bound up with the character of God. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus fulfills it in the sense, as you, as you guys mentioned, that he, he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. But there is also no doubt that there is discontinuity. We are not under the law, the Mosaic law. There, we are not needing to eat kosher. We, we don't need to be doing church on Saturday. We, we don't need to be circumcising our kids. We can if we want to, uh, but we, that, that's not the law for us. That all died with Christ, and, and now there's a change in the priesthood. There's a new covenant. There's a new law. There's a law of love, and that is still embodied in the moral character of God because it's Jesus, right? We follow the law of Jesus. Why you have a book, which means— Yeah, let me—Brian uh, <laughs> Rossner— wrote a book called Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. And he's arguing along the same lines that we are. Essentially says the Old Testament, all of it's still valid as, as wisdom, as, as prophetic fulfillment in Christ. It's all true. It's all for us. But it's really trying to thread that needle in, in ways similar to all, the, all that we've said. I found it really helpful for me to kind of understand that. It's true. Under the law of Christ, there's a, there's a change in, in ministry. There's a change in how it all works. Well, that doesn't make the Old Testament law somehow invalid. And I, no, no one's saying that, again. by the way. Good, I just, hold it up. And keeping in mind, most people are not watching this. They're listening right. to it. Read the name to us again, Brian Rosner. Uh, Brian S. Rosner, uh-huh. Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. D.A. Carson edited the book. It's in the yeah. New Studies in Biblical Theology series, uh, published by IVP, Apollos. So it's, it's, it's excellent. A shorter book, uh, and I don't mean shorter than that. I mean shorter than most of the places we've figured this out in our lives by, you know, reading Calvin and Luther and all these other things where long, meaty treatises. But a shorter one was Tom Schreiner's book, 40 Questions About the Law. I found that fabulous. Uh, I've used, used that multiple times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rob, did you want to chime in on this before we move on? No, I was going to say everything you guys said. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. It's very you don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lastly, uh, we are bumping up against the clock here. But lastly, in Acts 2, 
42 to 47, we've got you know famous picture. It's a it's a picture of the ideal church. This is the church responding to God's grace and gathering around God's grace, loving one another and spreading the word, experiencing his power. It is clearly intended as a plumb line of sorts. So let me read the passage to you. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Mm. Now, I don't read that to rub salt in the wounds because most of us right now uh, long for that. We feel that we've been cut mm. off from that. We feel like this, this lockdown that most of us are living under right now, in essence, takes that away from us. We've already talked about how our situation is somewhat like being in, in exile. And we've also talked about how that must be the hand of God. This cannot have happened while God was napping. God doesn't nap. He doesn't lose control. So this must be his ordination for us. And so the question, I guess, is what are we... What are we learning in this time when we're separated this? This, this is what we're made for. This is, this is what we long for. This is what we love. And right now we don't have it. Hmm. So what are we learning in this time? How are you being refined? What are you maybe doing that's helping you survive? What are you longing for as a result of being cut off from it? What improvements will you be making? We've had a lot, I, I've used the analogy, it's hard to do maintenance on an airplane in flight. So maybe God grounded us just so we could fix some stuff. What are you going to fix Tell me your thinking as a result of this unusual season. One thing that I just thought of as we were, I was looking over this text is I really think that this is a visual representation of the heart of the, of the exhortation in Hebrews 10. Hmm. We've been, a lot of us have been talking about Hebrews 10 and the gathering and exhorting yeah. and encouraging one another. I really think that, you know, Hebrews 10 is less of a, about a commandment about church attendance, but to me, and even understanding the context of Hebrews and the argument of all of it, um, it's really about fending off apostasy and fending off spiritual isolation and ensuring that we hold fast to the faith by encouraging one another and stirring up one another yeah. by gathering together. It's, it's, an, it's encouraging the, the people of Christ to have a heart of one anothering for the sake of endurance. Yeah. And I, it's, I don't think it's intended to be a commandment. And I think that's what we see here in Acts 2. We see this heart of people who've been radically changed and, and the Holy Spirit invades their lives. They're changed by the gospel. And what do they do? Well, they start stirring up one another, so encouraging one another in Christ. It's, I think it's a beautiful picture. And, and I think, again, it's, we don't need more commandments. We don't need more laws. We just talked about this. What we need are transformed affections. Hmm. We need transformed hearts. And Acts 2 shows us what happens when the Holy Spirit changes a bunch of people and invades their lives it's i think it's the same thing about with generosity we can go oh you need to give and tithe or we can look think about it like paul thinks about it in second corinthians 8 and 9 where he's saying i want you to give out of an overflowing of generosity and love and support for the mission and uh, you know it's not about commanding give it's about responding to the work of mission and the work of the church out of generosity and gratitude to god so I see that here in Acts 2. I just see people who get Hebrews 10, what it's really about. Yeah. They, they, they sell what they have 
not because there's a commandment, but because yeah. the spirit was alive in them. I think that's so powerful and critical for us to get. And, and for me, it's been really refreshing again to remind myself of just the importance of one anothering and the import and what that can look like and to have that heart for the people of God. It's, good. it's almost as if you're saying love fulfills the law. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that almost like, sounds like it could be in the Bible. Yeah, yeah almost, almost. <laughs> you, you know, I, I find it interesting in Acts 8, this Jerusalem scene gets dashed into pieces. That's right. Severe yeah. persecution. So they're not meeting in this idyllic, everything in, is in common. But what happens? They have to adapt. And as they're being dispersed and scattered, they're preaching the word. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wonder in our situation, I, I don't know all the causes of why we're in this time of trial and pain, but to some degree we're scattered. And right now we're scattered online. We're talking yeah. about scripture, sharing it. I've, there's there's, there's going to be countless stories and you guys probably all know them where really the word is getting out. People are reaching out. I know a pastor yeah. in my church went through a tragedy. People are seeing it online mm -hmm. and they've been either coming to the Lord or interested. Uh, it's, it, but we're not meeting. Right. And yet there's this profound power of, of testimony going on. And thankfully we have the internet in our dispersion, right? We're not yeah, scattering yeah. physically, but uh, technologically. So I don't know. I, I think one thing we can learn, at least from the book of Acts is that we can be outside of our comfort or meet in this idyllic setting and yet still be on mission. Mm. It's not a contradiction. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought that up because I, I just, uh, TGC, we're going to do that. Pray for me, pray for Canada. Um, conference in a, in, a, in a week or so. And I was recording that, my part in that today. And uh, I had the passage of James. And so James is the long-serving pastor, the half-brother of Jesus, who was called James the Just. And also, I, I did some study about this, and it was actually also called Old Camel Toes. Now, or sorry, not Camel Knees. Yeah. Oh, Camel Knees. Whoops. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Camel Knees. Um, anyway, but I read um, from one of the early church fathers who recorded about his life, because when we talk about our idealics, idealism of gathering, you know where James is known to have spent most of his time? Up on the Temple Mount. Yeah. He was one of the few guys allowed into the holy place, wore linen to go in there and crawled around, begging God to forgive the nation of Israel, begging God to be with the with the church and to forgive the sins of the church, not gathered in some you know sense of a mega church because we hear about the three thousand and this thousand and that were added. This was a guy who had basically had a wonderful big church and it was gone. And so where is he? He's on his knees in a dark place where there's no no holiest of holies, no Ark of the Covenant in there, just crying out to God on behalf mm. of the people. I wrote an article, uh, really, I didn't write an article. I wrote basically the ramblings of Steve Bray when I was going through two weeks of quarantine. And you, Paul, you asked this, 2020 has exposed my desire for affirmation from people and not God. Mm. 2020 exposed my confusing inconvenience within, with persecution. Um, 2020 exposed my hidden agenda that success and acceptance and ease mean God must be pleased with me. Mm. And 2020 is exposed that I confuse being God's under shepherd to the church with trying to be the savior of the church. Mm. And then lastly, which was the one that 2020 has been God's gift to me to make me look up, cry out and embrace the glorious need for revival of my heart. Mm. And that's, that's the best way I can sum up what I've learned over the last year. That's really good. 
That's really good. Well, that's all the time that we have uh, for today, but that's been a really remarkable conversation. I think it was Stephen that said at the start of this, it's amazing how when you read the Bible, it seems to be speaking right into your, into your day. <laughs> and boy, has that ever been the case this, this week. We've been well served. We'll be back on the 14th. We'll release again on the 14th of January. We'll talk to you about the next seven chapters in your Bible readings. Uh, but before we sign off, Rob, I wonder if we could get you to close us in prayer. Yeah, of course. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for the fact that you haven't left us in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't left us scrambling, trying to figure out which way we should go. Lord, you have given us your word, which is profitable and useful to teach us. But you've also given us your Holy Spirit who illuminates, who guides, who comforts and leads us. And so we thank you that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that your word um, is alive. And so for those listening today, Lord, I pray that as they interact with your word more and more each day, that Holy Spirit, you would move in their lives, you would illuminate, you would make relevant the teachings of scripture, and that you would form us more into the image of Jesus, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of many and the mission of the church. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, thanks for joining us, friends. And uh, thank you, panel. God willing, we will be back here Thursday, January 14th for another episode of Going Deeper with the End of the Word panel. Thank you and God bless.